Am I broadcasting? Here we go. Well, I'm glad to see you all here. We few, we bleary-eyed few on this, on this Sunday where we turn the clocks forward. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to Thee, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly Thine, utterly dedicated unto Thee, and then use us, we pray Thee, as Thou wilt, and always to Thy glory and the welfare of Thy people, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Somebody at Diocesan Convention yesterday asked what was going to happen after the processional hymn today. What comes next after the processional hymn? And I said, I don't know. What, you know, the opening acclamation. He goes, no, the 50 people who forgot to turn their clocks ahead. That, that's <laughs> it's so true, isn't it? But you're here and you're on time, so God bless you. Uh, we are at 2 Timothy today, and we are continuing with our study of 2 Timothy. We're going to pick up um, and actually look at verses 8 through the end of the chapter, but we're going to start with verse 3 today because it sort of sets the stage. Uh, just an announcement, I made it in the uh, 8 o'clock service. We're going to take a break from 2 Timothy beginning next week for about four weeks leading up to Easter. And a friend of mine, Alan Runyon, who some of you know is an attorney, he was the attorney for the diocese, uh, Alan um, was raised um, in Africa. His parents were missionaries there. And uh, Alan has spent, in addition to his law practice, a greater part of his adult life studying the scriptures. And he's going to do a presentation on the trials of Jesus. You may not be aware of it, but Jesus stood trial at least two different times prior to his crucifixion and his death. There was a Jewish trial and there was a Roman trial. And uh, Alan's going to walk us through all that the Lord endured in those events leading up uh, to his death. And I think it's a great way for us to get prepared for Holy Week. So for the next four weeks, Alan's going to be with us, and he'll make those presentations. Then following Easter, we'll come back here to this second letter to Timothy. But today, we are in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and following. Let's just go ahead and read through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands." For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day 
what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware all who are in Asia turned away from me. Among them are Phagelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know well all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Uh, Paul, we said at the beginning of this letter, uh, writing to his young protege, Timothy. Timothy is going to be responsible for carrying on Paul's work in the world. Paul knows at the time that he's writing this letter that he's coming to the end of his career. Um, this is his final imprisonment in Rome. We've noted that Paul had been in prison and in jail on any number of occasions prior to this. In fact, he had been in prison in Rome on a prior occasion, but it had been under house arrest. But now he knows that that is not the case. There's a systematic persecution taking place in the church at this point. The Emperor Nero is on the throne, and he is intent on wiping the Christians off the face of the earth. So Paul knows, as one of the ringleaders of the Christian movement, that the chances are he is going to be taken out any day, perhaps, at the time that he was writing this letter taken out along the Ostian Way, the main thoroughfare leading into Rome, and there he would be beheaded. Uh, most people who were enemies of the state were crucified. Uh, that, of course, is exactly what happened to the Apostle Peter. Peter was crucified upside down. And there were others who were crucified. Andrew, for example, on a, an X-shaped cross. That was not the case with Paul. Paul would ultimately be beheaded because he was a Roman citizen, and crucifixion was not something that a Roman citizen would ever be forced to endure. So he was still regarded as an enemy of the state, but he would be beheaded. And he knew that it could happen at any time. And he knew if the church was to survive, he had to pass the gospel on to this young man. So that's what he's doing in this letter. This is his last will and testament. And he begins by talking about Timothy and the faith that dwells within him. A faith that he said had been given to him, passed on to him, by who? By his mother and his grandmother. And that's why for the past couple of weeks we've been talking about family ministry and the importance of families and the impact that families can have for generations yet to come. But now, having talked about Timothy's faith, a faith that first dwelled in his grandmother and in his mother Eunice, Paul says now dwells in him through the laying on of hands. He encourages Timothy to fan that into flame. And he says, and be prepared. And this is very important. This is what we're going to take a look at today. He says, be very prepared to suffer for the sake of of your faith. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Well, today I want to talk about suffering for the sake of the gospel. First thing we have to ask ourselves is, what is the gospel? Before we can suffer for it, obviously we need to know what it is. What exactly is the gospel? Uh, the Greek word is an interesting word. It is the word evangelion. It is the word from which we get evangel, evangelism, evangelical. And literally translated, it means good news. 
good news or glad tidings. Uh, for example, uh, when the angels appeared to the shepherds at the time of the Lord's birth, we're told that they came with good news. They said, do not fear, for we bring you glad tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. In other words, we bring you good news, glad tidings. It's the best news. Well, what is the, what is the good news about? What is this, this message of glad tidings? What are these tidings of joy which the angels brought? Well, obviously, it was a message of salvation. We bring you glad tidings, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? A Savior. Not merely a king, but in particular, a Savior. Now, of course, Jesus was a king, but that wasn't the good news. People knew there were all kinds of kings in the ancient world. They were very familiar with that. What they rejoiced in, what the shepherds rejoiced in, what the Magi came to see was a Savior, as well as a king. So the good news of the gospel is that a Savior has come. Well, when you hear that word Savior, then that asks, raises the question, save from what? Now, when you talk about a Savior, that implies that there is some peril, doesn't it? So what are we being saved from? Well, you can see it up there on the scene, yes, of a screen. It's, it's death. Of course it is. I mean, Paul talks about that, doesn't he? Uh, look at verse 10. He talks about this gospel which has come in the person of Jesus Christ, verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the first thing we're being saved from, obviously, is death. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you'll recall that Adam and Eve were told that they could eat of any tree in the midst of the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they ate of that tree, on the day that they ate of it, they would surely what? die. So that is the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. And death continues to enthrall us as human beings. I've known people, we tend to think, well, you know, you get accustomed to the notion of death. Let me tell you something. I have seen young people who are fearful of death, and I have seen older people who lived a rich and full life and you would think would be ready to go. And still at 90-some years old, they're clinging tenaciously to life. Death continues to enthrall us. We are fearful of death. It's this thing that just sort of hangs over everything, everything that we do. We know that none of us is getting out of here alive. That's just the reality of it. And so the good news is that a Savior has come, and this Savior has come, Paul says, to save us from death, but not just from death. We, we tend to think that death is the worst thing in the world. I mean, what else is there? Well, there's what happens after death. It's, it's not just death that Christ came to save us from. It is also that he came to save us from the judgment that comes following death. Uh, take a look for a moment at Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians. And I'm uh, encouraging you to bring your Bibles. I'm just going to continue to do it until you do. Um, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul writes this. You've heard me quote these words many times before, but this is a very important passage in the New Testament, I think. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and in the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature, what does it say? Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now that's very important. And I think you've heard me say this before. So often we assume that by virtue of the fact that we are members of the human race, we are automatically children of God. You hear a lot about that. The fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. But I'm here to tell you today, there is nowhere in the scripture, nowhere where we are taught that we are automatically, by virtue of our inclusion in the human race, children of God. Now, we are all creatures of God, and we are exalted creatures. We have been made in the image of God. We are superior to every other thing that God has made, but that does not automatically make us a child of God. The New Testament, in particular, is very clear about this. You only become a child of God by adoption, by grace. That's what John chapter 1 says. He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. But to everyone who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And not by a husband's will or by flesh, but by faith. So we are all creatures of God, and we are exalted creatures, but we are not children of God unless we've been adopted into the family of God. And that happens by grace through faith. Otherwise, this is what Paul says, we are what? We are children of wrath. Children of wrath, which is to say we are under the judgment of God. And this is something we have to remember about God. The God we Christians worship is a holy God. He is a just God. And there has to be justice in the universe. And so, we are, by virtue of our sin, not only under the condemnation of death, but we're under the sentence of wrath as well. And that's why I say death is not the worst thing. Because it's not just death that is the end, there is something after death, isn't there? There's life after death. But the question you have to ask yourself is, what is the quality of that Life after death. Well, by nature, Paul says we're children of wrath. But he says we rejoice, and this is what he's telling Timothy. You can go back to Timothy now. What he's telling Timothy is that a Savior has come to not only save us from death, but to save us from wrath as well. I think the, the best way to understand the influence of sin in our lives is to think of it in terms of slavery, because that's how the New Testament speaks of sin. It speaks of it in terms of slavery. Now, slavery was something that the Apostle Paul would have been very familiar with in the first century world. Now, we're not so much familiar with slavery today, although it wasn't that long ago that slavery did exist in this country, but it was rampant in the ancient world. In fact, they used to say that nearly half of the population was enslaved to the other half of the population in the first century. That was probably safe to say. So as you were walking down the street, you would see a freed man, but you'd probably also see a slave. Now, there were three ways that a person became a slave in the ancient world. All right, three ways in which a person could become a slave in the ancient world. The first way was by birth. In other words, if your parents were slaves, you were automatically a slave when you were born. Just that was the way it was. You were born into that lowest state. The second way that a person could become a slave in the ancient world was by conquest. 
In other words, if an enemy nation attacked your nation and they conquered you, you automatically became the slaves of the conquerors. Uh, this had happened to Israel on any number of occasions. Uh, to both the northern and the southern kingdoms, they had been carried off into captivity in Babylon and in Assyria. Uh, at the time that God had decided to deliver them and, and make them His own chosen people, where were they living? In Egypt. And they were what? Slaves of the Egyptians, making bricks without straw, we're told. So everybody understood, at least every Israelite understood what it was to be a slave. And many people saw slaves in the ancient world. And you could become slaves by conquest. So you became a slave either by birth or by conquest, but you could also, listen to this, become a slave by debt. By debt. By indebtedness. Uh, in other words, if you owed a debt to someone else and you could not pay that debt, you had to forfeit your freedom to that person in the first century world. Uh, there were no debtor prisons in those days. There was no filing for bankruptcy in those days. If you were in debt to another person, you automatically became their slave until that debt was paid off. That was the ancient world in which the Apostle Paul was living. Now, what's curious about that is that Paul says, you and I are enslaved to sin. Isn't that what he says? He even describes his own life in that way. He says, the very things I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I hate, those are the things I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Well, let me see a show of hands. How many of you can relate to that? The very things you don't want to do, you find yourself doing. And the very things you hate, you do. Now, why is that? Well, Paul would say it's because you're enslaved. You're enslaved to sin. Now, the question is, well, how did I get enslaved to sin? In precisely the same way that a person became enslaved in the ancient world. We said that a person became a slave in the ancient world, first and foremost, what? By birth. Well, you and I are slaves to sin by virtue of our birth. We're all OS positive. We're all original sin positive. That's what David says in Psalm 51. He says, before I was even born in my mother's womb, I was a sinner. I, I always say that original sin is the one verifiable Christian doctrine. And anybody that's ever had children knows this is true. St. Augustine once said, the innocence of children has absolutely nothing to do with the purity of their nature. It has to do with the smallness of their stature. They simply can't get into trouble. But let them grow up a little bit. What's the first word that a child learns? No. Isn't that fascinating? No. It's the first word they know. Brush your teeth. No. Eat your greens. No. Get ready for school. No. We are born into this, and we know it to be true. We are slaves to sin by virtue of our birth. We're slaves to sin by conquest. But David also talks about sins, besetting sins. He said, reigning over me, trying to break free, but somehow I can't from the old patterns, the old behaviors, the old bad habits. And finally, a person becomes a slave by debt. We owe a debt to God, don't we? Isn't that how Paul describes it? He says the wages of sin is death. The wages, the payment for this. 
So the scripture says, just as a person became a slave in the ancient world, you and I are slaves. And, and the problem with being a slave is that you're not free. You may want to do certain things, but you do not have the liberty or the ability to do it. Now, I, I need to impress this upon you because it is so important. You will never recognize the value of a Savior until you recognize there is something from which you need to be saved. And that's what Paul is talking about. He says the good news is that a Savior has come. But to save us from what? Well, to save us from our bondage. From our bondage to sin and to death and for what happens after death judgment. Isn't that what we say every Sunday? And we believe that he will come again to do what? Judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. So we have to understand that that same Jesus who came in great humility and was born at that stable in Bethlehem is coming again at the end of the age. And he is coming as a judge, as the king of kings and as lord of lords. And he will separate, we're told, the sheep from the goats. So Christ comes to save us from this slavery. In so doing, he saves us from sin in three ways. First of all, he saves us from sin's penalty. The wages of sin is what? Death. So Christ comes and he saves us from death and from the fear of death. Not just death itself, but the fear of death. Did you ever notice that old tombstones talk about falling asleep in Christ? rather than dying? Because that, to the Christian, that's what it is. It is like falling asleep in the arms of the Lord and waking up in His presence. Now, there was a time when people were fearful of death, but all of a sudden that changed. Just think about the disciples for a moment. Just think about Peter when the Lord was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and dragged off to the palace of the high priest, Caiaphas. And he's being tried there, and Caiaphas is interrogating Jesus. And Peter, just that very night, had said, If everybody else deserts you, I'll be loyal to you, Lord. I'll never deny you. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you'll deny me what? Three times. And Peter says, Not me. And what had happened? Well, of course, he had denied the Lord three times, on one occasion to a little girl. Now, why did he do that? Because of fear. Fear of what? getting arrested and getting what? Killed. <laughs> That's, if you think about it, that was the ultimate threat for Peter. If we get you, we find you're with Jesus, we're going to put you to death. And he didn't want that. And so he denied the Lord three times. Now what is interesting is you turn two pages in your Bible and it's no longer Good Friday. All of a sudden, it's Easter Monday. And Peter is out preaching to the very same Sanhedrin that just 48 hours before had condemned Jesus to death. What takes place in Peter's life? Because it was the same Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus, and if the truth be known, had the power to put him to death. But now he doesn't seem to be fearful of death. Before, he was willing to deny Christ three times in order to save his own skin. Now he's out risking his life for the sake of Christ. What happened that he no longer feared death? The resurrection. He realized that Jesus, by his death, by his resurrection, had what? Rescued him from the fear of death. How did Martin Luther put it in his great hymn? The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. 
His kingdom is forever. That was the great message. They can kill the body, but they can't what? They can't kill the soul. Well, Jesus came to rescue us from that, from the fear of death. Death is not the end, my friends. If it is only for this life that we have hope, the Apostle Paul says, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's the hope that we have as Christians. Listen, death is not the end. My goodness, if you only live for 70 or 80 years, and that's it. What hope is there? No, we have been delivered from sin's penalty. But here's what's also interesting. Paul makes it very clear, Christ came not only to save us from sin's penalty, he came to free us from sin's power. We talked about how frustrated we feel when we know what we ought to do, but we don't do it. We may have the best of intentions, but what do they say? The road to hell is paved with what? Good intentions. So we may have the, the best of intentions to lead a holy life, to not fall into those old besetting sins, and no matter how hard we try, what? We still fall into them. Now, why is that? Well, it's obvious because we're slaves. We're slaves to sin. Well, when Paul says Christ came to be our Savior, he said he came to free us not only from the penalty of sin, which is death and judgment, he also came to free us from the power of sin. When you are a person who believes in Christ, when you place your faith in Christ, when you acknowledge that you are a sinner and you place your faith in him, something happens. What happens to you? Not a trick question. <laughs> Somebody comes and takes up residence in your life. Isn't that what we talk? Sometimes we tell children, we say, you have to invite Jesus into your what? Into your heart. Well, how does that happen? Well, what happens is God the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life. We call this sanctification. The first doctrine is justification, to be lined up with God. You're declared righteous. But here's the point. To be declared righteous doesn't mean that you're made righteous. So God is about to make you into the thing that he's declared you to be. I always describe it in terms of a princess. Uh, think of uh, a prince who falls in love with a commoner. Uh, a girl that really has a sort of sordid reputation. She doesn't come from the upper echelons of the aristocracy. She's just a commoner. He met her one day at some sort of theater or whatever it may be, and the prince falls in love with her. His parents do not approve. The country does not approve. She's not worthy of being a princess. She doesn't act like a princess. She doesn't look like a princess. But let me ask you this question. If he's determined to marry her, and he does, the minute they walk out of that cathedral, what is she? She's a princess. A legal change has taken place in her, hasn't it? Now, the hope is that she will eventually grow into her new role. She is already a princess. Now she has to become the very thing that she's been declared to be. Well, that's what God does with us. It's a wedding that takes place, my friends. God weds you when you place your faith in Him. You walk into the cathedral, as it were, Miss Sinner. You walk out, Mrs. Christian. 
a change takes place. But now, God the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life and He is in the process of turning you into the very thing that He's declared you to be. He's declared you to be a holy and righteous person, a saint. Now He's going to turn you into one. And that's the process of sanctification. And it's a process of renovation. Let me tell you, God will take up residence in your life. And it's like taking up residence in a decrepit old house. God is going to begin to renovate your life room by room. Get ready for it. But as he does, you will suddenly discover the ability, the power to do the very things that you were incapable of doing before. Why? Because it's no longer you who's doing it. It's God himself working in you to will and to persevere. So God doesn't want to just free you from the penalty of sin. He wants to free you from the power of sin so that you can do the things that you want to do and resist the things that you want to resist. You won't do it by your own strength, but now because he dwells within you, he will release you, free you, liberate you from the power of sin. And here's the good news. One day in heaven, God is not only going to deliver us from the penalty of sin, and the power of sin. Here's the best part of all. He's going to deliver you from the presence of sin. There's going to come a day, not in this life, but in the life to come, when sin will be no more. When death itself shall die, and sin itself shall be no more. So that's what Christ comes to do. That's what the gospel is. That's what salvation is really all about. It is about liberation. Now the question arises, exactly how does God do this? How, how does he save us from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin? How does he liberate us? The most beautiful word, I think, in the New Testament is the word redemption. He redeems us. The only way that a person could become freed in the ancient world if they were a slave was if what? somebody else came along and bought them and set them free. If you and I are slaves to sin, and the Bible actually describes it as slaves to sin, the flesh, the world, and the devil. If we are slaves to the devil, in order to be freed, what does Christ have to do? He has to come and he has to buy us back. Now the question is, how does he do that? Well, the most powerful story that I know of in the Bible, apart from the Lord's own death and resurrection, that I think powerfully illustrates how Jesus Christ frees us, is the book of Hosea. Now, that's probably not a book most people are familiar with, but I encourage you sometime to go back and read the book of Hosea. I'm going to tell you very quickly what the book of Hosea is about. Hosea was one of the minor prophets. Minor, not in terms of importance, but just in terms of the length of the book. It's a short book, Hosea. And God has decided to call this man, Hosea, as a prophet. And he's saying, I've got a task for you, Hosea. You're going to be one of my prophets. And Hosea is like, well, that's great. You know, it's a great honor. I'll be a prophet. And I, I, here's your task. You are going to take for yourself a wife. Hosea was a bachelor at this point. The Lord says, you're going to take him take for yourself a wife. And Hosea says, okay. And the Lord says, and, and, and here's something else. She is beautiful. 
She's breathtakingly beautiful. To which Hosea says, well, this, this is great. I'm, I'm all for this. But the Lord says, but there is some bad news. And here's the bad news. You're going to love her, but she's going to be unfaithful to you. And your marriage to this woman, whose name was Gomer, that was the only unattractive thing about her was her name. (laughs) He says, you're going to love Gomer, she's beautiful, men are going to envy you, but she's not going to be faithful to you. She's going to be unfaithful to you over and over again. And your marriage will symbolize my relationship to the people of Israel. So Hosea meets Gomer, he takes her for his wife, and at first things seem to go pretty well. He cares for her, and she cares for him, but she soon discovers that, you know, prophets don't make a whole lot of money, and uh, he can't really keep her in the style to which she's become accustomed. And so as the Lord says, she does what? She wanders off, and she finds another man. And this man seems to be able to take care of her better than Hosea can. And so she goes off with this other man. But you know how it is oftentimes with the very affluent. They're always looking for something else. There's that that excitement initially, but then you know what? You sort of get weary of it. I think of that fellow that's um, the president of Virgin Atlantic Airlines and Virgin Records, Branson. Branson. I read something about him that he's a man that is always looking for the next thrill. Because he tries things, and then he sort of gets weary of them, and he's always looking for the next thing. Well, that's the way it was for this man to whom Gomer had attached herself. Oh, my goodness. He gave her everything that she could possibly imagine, but then after a while, you know how it is. He got tired of her, and he was ready to move on to the next one. So what does she do? She comes back sheepishly to Hosea. And what does he do? He takes her back. He takes her back. But it doesn't last for very long. Before long, she's found another man. And he can't take care of her quite as well as the first man, but certainly better than the prophet. So she goes off with this man. And she goes through a whole series of relationships. And things just get worse and worse and worse and worse until finally she finds herself, the book says, in great debt. And because of her debt, she has to be sold as a slave. Now, in the ancient world, slaves were sold on an auction block. They were sold like animals. They'd be brought up here. Open your mouth. Let's see your teeth. Turn around. Let's take a look at you. And here's the other thing. Slaves in the ancient world were always sold naked. Now, I just want you to imagine, ladies, what that would have been like for a woman. She is brought up here in front of all these gawking men, and she is stripped of all of her clothing, and she is exposed to the world, and she's told to turn around. Now, she has lost some of her girlish charms as a result of this hard living that she's had. But they start the bidding. And even though she's lost some of those girlish charms, she's still an attractive woman. And the bidding starts to go up and up and up. Somebody wants to buy this woman. 
And just as the gavel is about to fall, and she's about to be sold for a very high price, from the back of the room, somebody shouts out an exorbitant sum. And everybody turns around to see who it was. And it was Hosea. No one else was willing to bid as high as he was. And the gavel falls. And she's been sold. And Hosea makes his way through the crowd. And he comes up and he takes off his cloak. And he puts it around her nakedness and covers her up. And he leads her out and he says, I am your husband. You are my wife. You belong to me. From here on out, we will be faithful to one another. That is what Jesus Christ did for you and me. We were enslaved to sin. We had lost our boyish and girlish charms by our hard living. We were in bondage. And the devil was bidding for our souls. And someone from the back of the room shouted out a price. God shouted out a price for us. The highest price imaginable. The price of his son's own life. And having purchased us there on the cross, he then comes and he clothes our nakedness with his own righteousness. And he leads us away. And he says, now you belong to me. I've purchased you. And from here on out, we will be faithful to one another. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. That's the good news. The glad tidings. I once was lost, but now I'm found. When we come back in a couple of weeks, we're going to take a look at the fact that we've not only been saved from something, We've been saved for something, for a new life. The old has passed away, the new has come. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you loved us. In spite of our sin, in spite of our unfaithfulness, in spite of the fact that we Grieve your Holy Spirit every time we break your law, every time we turn away. By our sin, we prove ourselves unfaithful like adulterers. And yet you love us. You love us so much that you're willing to pay the highest price for our freedom. The price of your own son's blood. You clothe us in your righteousness. We come into the church as it were, Miss Sinner, we leave as... Mrs. Christian, grant us the grace to rejoice in this salvation. And like Paul and like Timothy, if necessary, to suffer for it. And we ask this for the sake of him who suffered everything for us, Jesus Christ our Lord.
Amen. Okay, thank you.